Perspectives. I'm your host, Dr. Jay Feldstein. And today we're talking with Dr. Gary Freed about sudden infant death syndrome or SIDS. Dr. Freed is a clinical professor in the Department of Pediatrics at PCOM Georgia. He's an alumnus of the University of Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania and the College of Osteopathic Medicine at Des Moines University in Iowa. Dr. Free completed a residency in pediatrics at Thomas Jefferson University in Philadelphia and a neonatology fellowship at the Robert Wood Johnson Medical School at Rutgers University in Camden, New Jersey. In 1990, Dr. Free began working as an assistant professor of pediatrics at Emory University School of Medicine in Atlanta. He soon became an associate professor and worked as an award-winning full professor at Emory until his retirement on December 31st, 2016. Dr. Freed took two days off and joined the PCOM Georgia faculty on January 3rd, 2017. His major areas of interest and in research are SIDS and infant apnea. He is the Georgia chapter of the American Academy of Pediatric Expert on SIDS and safe sleep. Recently, U.S. Senators Johnny Isaacson of Georgia and Bob Casey of Pennsylvania along with other legislators, introduced a bipartisan bill in Congress aimed at combating sudden unexpected infant death and sudden unexplained death in childhood. The bill also aims to strengthen existing efforts to understand these tragedies and improve prevention efforts. Please tell me about yourself and your involvement with SIDS and infant apnea, along with your opinion on the proposed legislation. Okay, well, after my uh, residency at at Thomas Jefferson, I went into private practice in Haddon Heights, New Jersey, where I practiced for nine years. After that time, I really missed being in the hospital, the excitement, the challenge, and went back and did a neonatology fellowship. During that time, the head of the program ran the only SIDS clinic in south of New Jersey. I'd say from middle Trenton on down, there was only the one program. And I became interested in that, did some research in it, helped the uh, head of the uh, department with uh, SIDS Clinic. And in 1987, I applied for and actually got the job to be the clinical director of the American SIDS Institute, which is a freestanding um, Institute in Atlanta doing uh, SIDS research at the time. And from there, I then went to Emory University in 1990, where I was the director of the nurseries, the intermediate and term nurseries at Grady Hospital, which is the big center city hospital here. I then started an outpatient clinic to follow these babies, primarily the kids that were having apnea and bradycardia, because that was where my interest. So these were just for people who were graduates of the Emory System nurseries. And within a year or two, some of the other neonatologists in the city found out I was doing this clinic and asked if they could send their children there. And that started to grow. And by 1996, we opened it up as a statewide program. So I was seeing kids from all over Georgia who were having problems with infant apnea. And that's how I became the quote, you know, guru for infant apnea and uh, children who had died of SIDS, seeing their parents and counseling. And uh, that's that's been my interest for the last, I'd say, 30 years or so. Now, as far as the, the bill, 
I think it's long overdue. Um, there has been a, lots of research in SIDS, and we'll, we'll get into some of that in a few minutes. And there's been progress in lowering the incidence. However, the sudden unexplained death in childhood is essentially unknown. Most physicians, and I would probably say, including pediatricians, have never even heard of this, despite the fact that it's the fifth leading cause of death in toddlers. By definition, the sudden unexpected death in childhood ranges from 1 to 18, but the vast majority of children that are dying are between 1 and 3 years of age, preponderance of males. And the death rate is about 1, between 1 and 2, 1 1.4 per 100,000. So you're talking about roughly 400 children per year who, you know, over a year of age are found dead and they cannot find on autopsy or death scene investigation uh, the cause. And up until now, there hasn't been one dollar, literally zero, spent on research from CDC or NIH on this topic. And if you do a literature search on SIDS, there are over 11,000 articles on SIDS and research about SIDS. And if you look at the sudden death in childhood, there's 30. So it's been something that's grossly understudied and people just don't know about it. And it's great that uh, something's gonna be done at this time. So Dr. Freed, did you just describe the term SUID? No, that's different. SUID, SUID is sudden unexpected death in, it's sudden unexpected infant death. So those are infants. And the definition, it's a child who's died suddenly and unexpectedly under a year of age, whose cause is not readily noted at the time of death. However, if you look at these kids, a certain percentage of these, when they do either death scene investigation or an autopsy, they come up with a cause. That's about 25% of these do it. Autopsy, they can find inborn errors in metabolism, uh, some type of congenital anomaly. Uh, death scene investigation, they might surmise that the child died of asphyxiation or suffocation. And that's about 20 to 25 percent of this steward category, which is your main, main topic. Under that are, the, are known causes. And then another branch of that are the children who, despite a death scene investigation, autopsy, and review of their uh, past medical history find no cause, that's SIDS. And then the third topic coming off of SUID are those kids who no reason is found, but they didn't have all three autopsy, death scene investigation, uh, and review of the clinical history. So those are listed as undetermined. And the breakdown of SUID is about a quarter of them, you come up with an etiology, a quarter of them, they didn't meet the requirement for anything, and it's undetermined, and about half of those are SIDS. And the SIDS deaths are about 3,500 a year. So it's a lot more than the childhood, but a lot more has been studied and um, interventions have taken place. What has the American Academy of Pediatrics done to address the SIDS suffocation problem? Well, 
going back to 1992, the American Academy of Pediatrics, in reaction to articles actually out of Europe and Australia, specifically Tasmania, uh, recommended that babies be placed in a non-prone position. This was 1992. Most of the pediatricians ignored this. They were taught that babies go face down, and that's the way everybody had been placed to sleep. So in 1994, the American Academy of Pediatrics basically did an end run around the pediatricians and started marketing to the families directly. So they placed ads in baby magazines, in the pregnancy magazines, PSA spots on TV, warning of the danger of placing your child face down. Uh, so this was the back to sleep campaign, uh, which proved to be very effective. If you look at the SIDS rate from 1992, it was 1.2 per thousand. And by 2001, it had dropped to 0 0.56 or a 53% drop in 10 years, which was great. The problem is between 2001 and now, the rate has not changed. It's still about 0.56 per thousand. What has changed is the rate of suffocation has gone up fourfold. So while the SIDS rate has been dropping, the percentage of infants dying of suffocation or asphyxiation has, like I said, quadrupled. So in response to that, in uh, 2012, the Academy came out with the Safe to Sleep campaign. And with this Safe to Sleep was it included the back to sleep information about how to prevent SIDS or at least reduce the risk of SIDS, but it also included material on how to try and decrease the incidence of suffocation. So the original back to sleep included things like babies should be put on their back only. They changed the recommendation from 1992 to from non-supine to Specifically, I mean non-prone to supine, because they found that side sleep positioning was actually the third leading cause of death. First was sleeping face down, second was cigarette smoke exposure, and third was side sleeping. So in 96, it was back only. That was one of the recommendations. Breastfeeding was shown to reduce the incidence of SIDS. Uh, and that was the major impact. The safe to sleep then addressed the actual sleeping environment. So they recommended that the baby sleep in the parent's room, but on a different surface. So no co-sleeping. Uh, mattresses for the baby's cribs were supposed to be very firm and passed and still people get these thick, soft mattresses because they think if it's soft and cuddly, the baby's going to like it better and sleep better. Other recommendations are nothing in the crib, no stuffed animals, no blankets, no quilts, no bumper pads. And they changed the federal requirements for the width of the slats of the crib. So no more than two and three eighths inches. The babies can't get body parts trapped there because that was the rationale for putting bumper pads in. But kids were found asphyxiated under the bumper pads. Uh, the strings that tied them on came loose and wrapped around children's necks. 
they're working and that's the, the current thing is the um, safe to sleep. What's disturbing is an article came out two months ago showing that only 44% of families in the United States are listening to these requirements and placing the babies exclusively to sleep on their back rather than face down. We're lacking in getting that message out. So the more that can be done, the more funding there is, hopefully we can help reduce this preventable tragedy. What, what can PCOM as an institution do to help with this problem? Well, first of all, to make it known that there's this health insurance business, and you may be familiar with the controversy surrounding reimbursement for home cardiorespiratory monitoring. Now, the American Academy of Pediatrics, they specifically say that it's not indicated to reduce the incidence of SIDS, but they do say that in specific instances, such as a child who's continuing to have some episodes of apnea, uh, children requiring oxygen, those with certain craniofacial abnormalities, uh, home monitoring might be indicated. However, what has been happening is when you order a monitoring, the home care companies say they're no longer carrying them because insurance is not um, covering them. They say there's no indication. So how do you, what are your feelings on that? And how do you propose to approach an insurance company to say, you know, how can you justify this? I've been out of the industry for uh, five years now, but in my days in, in the Medicaid world, in the commercial world, you know, we rarely denied these monitors um, because, you know, you know, we, we actually, you know, we have committees that look at medical necessity. Sometimes it's based on what the actual policy is, whether somebody bought a policy that covers these type of devices. Sometimes policies are sold without coverage for home monitoring. People aren't aware of that because they, they never read their policies. They don't know what they bought. The, the second fact would be that we would tell everybody to appeal. Because it's, it's going to be rare where a neonatologist is going to be recommending something and it wouldn't be overturned on appeal. So a lot of the policies vary from insurance company to insurance company. Uh, I remember in my Medicaid days, and we had a lot, obviously, you know, a lot of kids are on Medicaid. Um, we very rarely had denials for home monitoring. Now, I don't know if something's changed in the last five years. But, but I would suggest that people use their appeal rights, you know, because there's a second level appeal, there's a third level appeal, and there's an external appeal. And, it, you know, especially for these specific conditions, it'd be very rare that they wouldn't at least be overturned on appeal. What they're recommending is just put the child on a pulse oximeter, which was a lot That's cheaper. That's what's coming back now? Yep. To determine whether it's medically necessary? No, they said instead of a cardiorespiratory monitor, just use a pulse ox. That's interesting. That's the, yeah. I mean, that's, that's the first I heard of that. I, I, would just, yeah, lot, I would just tell people to keep pushing. Okay. I understand you were at, uh, you were at Stratford doing your emergency room training? I, I did my internship in Stratford, and I did my emergency medicine uh, residency at the Medical Center in Delaware. That's what it was known at that time. Now it's Christiana Care. 
Okay. Now, what was your internship was rotating or was that a... Yeah, it was okay. rotating. And how did you feel? I know speaking to many uh, emergency room physicians who are take care of primarily adults, that they dread seeing a neonate come into their emergency room. Uh, since all I dealt with were children with infant apnea, bradycardia, or kids who were resuscitated at home and frequently had to refer them to emergency rooms to get to be stabilized. What did you feel about seeing these kids? I'll be quite blunt. The worst three months of my life was my internal medicine rotation. I could not <laughs> handle, could not stand dealing with adults. So I'd like to know the other aspect of people who primarily deal with adults. What do you think about my little babies? No, I always enjoyed peds. And in my residency, we did two months of PICU. And we also did a month in the NICU. I had a decent comfort level in taking care of neonates, you know, from an intubation, resuscitation, IV access, umbilical access, uh, plus the fact that I was in a tertiary care center with PEDS residents in-house, which always helps. That you know, helps. But that helps. So it wasn't so much uh, the dread as if you're at a small community hospital and someone rushes in the door, my baby's not breathing. You know, that pan that sense of panic that goes on uh, within that, you know, you've got to deal with. Uh, and obviously, the more you see, the more you do, the more comfortable you are. So I think it's incumbent that we make sure that our residency programs train people accordingly so they get enough exposure so they do have a decent comfort level. The other thing I found, especially like my training when I was at uh, Cooper, a hospital that's not just a pediatric hospital frequently didn't have the right equipment. That sometimes was a major problem. Did you yeah, find nothing that? Worse than, yeah, well, I'm nothing worse than reaching for an ET tube that's not the right size. Right. Or a pediatric, you know, scope. So I, I share that. But I think, and what's happened, unfortunately, and you really raise a good issue, you know, in our day, there were lots of community hospitals with, that had community pediatrics in the hospital. They had inpatient beds, they had pediatricians right. on staff. People were used to seeing kids. Today, everything is so specialized. There are no inpatient ped services at community hospitals anymore. They're all at pediatric hospitals. So right. the flip side is that you're getting less and less exposure in those community-based settings where if, you know now everybody takes their kids to a pediatric hospital, pediatric urgent care center, you know, pediatric subspecialty, whatever it is. So the, the training's more specialized. So it's, it puts more pressure on the training if you're going to go out in a community-based setting. And you're right, because you go out now, those places, they're not going to have the right equipment. So it's almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy. The only place you get pediatric care is at a pediatric hospital. Right, and you get a rural area, and there's nothing. Is, especially in rural areas like we're going to have a motion. So we'll make sure exactly. we'll get you down there a couple of days a week. I have nobody else at home to wait for me other than my <laughs> wife. So. Well, thank you, Dr. Freed. We are very pleased to have him as part of our clinical faculty, and we look forward to following the outcome of the recently introduced legislation 
which we will do our best to support. To listen to past episodes of this podcast and to become a subscriber, visit our SoundCloud page or find us on iTunes by searching Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine. I'm Jay Feldstein, and this has been PCOM Perspectives. Thank you.